One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to The Real Story with me, Julian Marshall. And this week we start the programme outside a large neoclassical stone mansion on the edge of London's Green Park. It's called Lancaster House and in 1979 was the scene of negotiations that led to the birth of Zimbabwe. An agreement signed here transferred power from the white minority to the black majority in Zimbabwe and elections in 1980 were won by former guerrilla leader Robert Mugabe and his ZANU-PF party. Fast forward to 2017 and President Mugabe is finally forced from power after the intervention of the military and replaced by one of his former ministers, Emerson Mnangagwa. During his nearly four decades in office, Mr Mugabe presided over a rapidly declining economy while elections were won through the violent intimidation of the opposition. Mr Mnangagwa has promised a clean break with the past, but as Zimbabweans prepare to elect a new president and parliament next week, how much has really changed and what are the economic challenges facing the new leader of a country that was once known as the breadbasket of Africa? Well, let's get back to the studio and meet our panel. And our panel is Julia Gallagher, Professor of African Politics at SOAS, University of London, and author of Zimbabwe's International Relations. Uh, Paul Mangwana, Legal Affairs Secretary for Zimbabwe's governing ZANU-PF party. He's in the Zimbabwean capital, Harare. And Dr Alex Magaisa, former Chief of Staff to the late leader of the opposition, MDC party, Morgan Shvangirai. He's in our Washington studio. And a very warm welcome to you all. First, though, let's hear from the campaign trail in Zimbabwe itself and the BBC's uh, Chingai Nyoka. How different is the electioneering this time from the past? Well, there's a real sense of excitement on the ground about this election. There's a sense of fresh hope um, about the outcomes. Uh, compared to the previous election, there's been an observation that this is probably one of the most peaceful pre-election periods that Zimbabweans have witnessed in about 20 years. Uh, political parties across the board have been able to campaign uh, relatively freely and access some of those areas uh, that were a ruling party strongholds. And the sense of excitement about this election, I guess, is reflected in the sheer number of political parties and individual candidates that have registered to participate. Uh, we understand from the Electoral Commission there are 23 presidential candidates, uh, which is a fivefold increase from previous elections, and as well as 55 political parties that have registered to take part. And so there's a real sense that this could be the fresh start um, that's been availed with this particular election. And uh, what is also different, Guy, from previous elections is the, the large number of people from abroad who are observing the elections. Absolutely. And uh, specifically from the European Union, as well as from the American embassy, it's no secret that President Robert Mugabe had shut out observers and representatives from those particular countries in 2002. So it's been 16 years since they've been back. There's also a representation from the Commonwealth Group. It really shows the extent to which uh, this government is really keen to get the approval of the international community. 
And how does the presidential election work? Must the winning candidate reach a particular threshold? The presidential candidate will have to win what's called an absolute majority. So that is 50% plus one of the vote. So he cannot, he or she cannot take uh, the presidency with just a simple majority. The opinion polls at the moment appear to show Emerson Mnangagwa leading, but in the lower 40s and Nelson Chamisa in the upper 30s. So even though these polls are unreliable, it really gives a sense of how tightly contested uh, this election is and the potential for a runoff, which will then be held on September 8th. That was the BBC's uh, Tingai Nyoka in Harare. And uh, now a question to our panel, to you all. Do these elections represent a clean break with the past? Professor Gallagher. I'm afraid I don't think they really do, in the sense that the new leader of ZANU-PF, Mr Mnangagwa, is essentially a man of continuity with the former regime, with Robert Mugabe, and that although he certainly is making very positive-sounding noises about engaging with the international community and widening relationship with the electorate and so on, actually his record in office and his apparent lack of ideas since he's become president suggests that actually there isn't very much new here. And so I don't see from the ZANU-PF side a great shift. In terms of the opposition, I think there's a real problem in the fact that there's a very young, new and untested leader of the main opposition party and that the opposition remains deeply fractured. I think the number of parties is not encouraging. I think 23 candidates contesting the presidential election is a problem, not a positive sign. Paul Manguana of the uh, governing ZANU-PF, presumably you would take exception there to uh, that characterisation of Emerson Menangagwa as being more of the same. Uh, Certainly is not more of the same. When you are a subordinate and you have a leader, your own character cannot reflect what that leadership will be doing, uh, it cannot be a reflection of your own character. Uh, so President Mnangagwa should be measured in terms of what he has done since he assumed power. He has opened up the democratic space. He has clearly said uh, we welcome foreign direct investment. You would want to normalize the relations with the entire international community. He should never be judged in terms of what was happening when the country was being led by President Robert Mugabe. He was a loyal subordinate, of course, but uh, he should be measured in terms of what he has done, what he has said, and what he's really doing right now. And he has shown that uh, he is a Democrat. He has opened the space. He's allowed uh, every uh, political player to have their space. The elections are free and fair. There is no violence in the country. Everyone is free to hold their own meetings, say whatever they want. He's not muzzling anyone. So uh, it is a wrong characterization to say simply because he served as a subordinate in uh, former President Robert Mugabe's office and also in his government, and therefore is guilty of the sins you're accusing former President Mugabe to have committed. No. Uh, Dr Alex Magaisa, are these elections a clean break with the past? Well, thank you. I see that there have been a number of challenges in this election. Mr Mnangagwa has tried, as uh, Mr Mangwana has said, to show up the face of a Democrat. But as Professor Gallagher pointed out, the actions do not always conform to the words. You will find with ZANU-PF that they will 
want to take credit for the benefits or the good things that were done during the Mugabe era, um, which were few, but deny the the wrong things that were done during that period. And, and so they are they are denying Mugabe now that uh, he is no longer in office. The reality is that yes, there has been an opening up of uh, political space since November. There is uh, some more freedom for people to campaign and to participate in the elections, and the opening up to the world is a good thing. But we see a lot of continuities. For example, you know, the captured institutions like the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, which is the public broadcaster, which is openly partisan, uh, the, the military and other parts of the state, which continue to bait for the opposition. The system hasn't really changed. So Mugabeism is still there, even though Mr. Mugabe himself is no longer there. We see a lot of false sense of entitlement among the current leadership, that they should be in charge regardless of the situation. We see bribery of traditional leaders. All those things that used to happen during the Mugabe era are still happening. What about that particular point, Dr. Magisa, that uh, Professor Gallagher made, um, questioning the suitability of the opposition presidential candidate, Nelson Chamisa, for office? He hasn't been tested, she said. Nelson Chamisa is a career politician. He has been in politics since he was in his teens. And he has worked with uh, very tenacious and courageous leaders and learned from them people like the late Morgan Changirai himself. Nelson Chamisa is one of the few people who have stood the test, who have remained loyal to the democratic cause. The important thing about Nelson is that he's got a team of people around him, a team of elders, a team of people who are willing and able to assist him in this. One of the problems that Zimbabwe has is that we have had strong leaders like Mr. Mugabe and very weak institutions. I would rather have Nelson Chamisa, who is coming in fresh and he will be subordinate to the institutions and work with people who are able to assist him in carrying out this task. Paul Mangwana, does the governing ZANU-PF party believe that it has a right to go on governing Zimbabwe? ZANU-PF does not have a right to continue governing Zimbabwe. It must only govern as an expression of the wish of the people of Zimbabwe. It is a democratic party. It is going into this election without a sense of entitlement. It is going into this election with its policies clearly articulated, with its deliverables, with its rich history of the interests of the people of Zimbabwe. It is the party which brought independence to the people. It fought the colonial regime. It is ushered in black empowerment. It is there to represent the interests of the majority of the people of Zimbabwe. And it is clear that it is going to correct whatever wrongs could have been done in the past and usher in a new dispensation, as we call it. Professor Gallagher, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe is clearly trying to rebrand itself. Are you convinced? I think it did a pretty effective rebranding exercise in the last elections, actually. The 2013 elections, ZANU-PF campaigned very vigorously and did a fantastic job, particularly in the rural areas, in really reaching out to people and promising them and even giving them things that they really wanted. And I think one of the things that's often overlooked about that last election is how persuasive and how effective as a campaigning machine ZANU-PF really is. I think that will continue. They know how to do it. They're incredibly effective political campaigners. 
In terms of actual change once an election is over, it didn't happen last time. I'm not convinced it will happen this time. I think that the material interests of the leaders of that party and their connections in the, into the military are too entrenched to let go. And I would be extremely surprised if actually there was anything underneath a rather superficial attempt to re-engage the electorate. Dr. Magesa, is that something that worries you too, this uh, nexus in Zimbabwe between the governing party and the military? I think it's a concern. It's a concern because of the history that binds the military and ZANU-PF. We all acknowledge they fought uh, the war of independence, their comrades, they've got those connections. Uh, But I think it's important also to acknowledge that within the security establishment, there are professional people. There are people who want to get on with their jobs of defending the country and upholding the constitution. And I think that it is important to allow that to happen. I don't think that it will happen with ZANU-PF in charge. I think it's actually important, as we have said in the past, that ZANU-PF should experience life as an opposition party. If they do that, they will understand. A few years ago, uh, Paul Mangwana and I were sitting on the opposite side of the table during the constitution-making process, and we used to say, look, guys, one day you might be in opposition, one day you might want to do this thing to Mugabe. Let's have these good clauses in the constitution. And some of them used to Reviews, But of course, we found common ground eventually and we produced a constitution that we are proud of and they were able to use that constitution to get rid of Mr. Mugabe. So I think that there are opportunities to have a professional system, to have a bureaucracy that works for the country as opposed to working for a particular political party. This idea of ZANU-PF capturing institutions is what has caused Zimbabwe to be in these doldrums. Paul Mangwana, Emerson Managagwa owes his current position to military intervention. Who would you say is running the country at the moment? His vice president, Constantino Chiwenga, is a former head of the army. Who's running Zimbabwe at the moment? It is a civilian government. I want to correct one notion that Emerson Mnangagwa was put into office by the military. That is not a correct factual position. The military, yes, did an intervention for and on behalf of the civilians. It is the civilians who came out in their millions, outpoured into the streets, and parliament played its role to remove Mugabe through the constitutional and legal process. The only thing the military did was to ensure that Mugabe did not use his position of incumbents to then uh, unleash violence upon the civilians who were taking over and playing their role to remove him using the constitution, using the parliamentary process. Mugabe resigned when parliament was just about to pass a motion of no confidence in him to impeach him. During that process of impeachment, that is when he wrote the letter of resignation. So it is not the military which removed him. The military assisted the civilians to take charge of their legal rights in terms of the constitution to remove the leader they did not want and allow parliament to pass a vote of no confidence against him. I was there and I played a key role when these things were happening. Professor Gallagher, let's uh, just look a little bit more closely at uh, Emerson Manangagwa himself, uh, the man who would be Zimbabwe's next elected leader. He served in a number of positions under President Robert Mugabe and uh, 
there are those who question his role in the notorious Matabililand massacres in the 1980s. I think that's right. If you talk to people in Matabililand, the first thing that they will raise with you in conversation is the Gukurundi massacres. And of course, Matabililand is where the minority and the Bele population in Zimbabwe live. That's right. And, and that population was the focus of that action in the early 1980s. And people will, long before Mnagagwa became president, would always associate him as the leader and propagator of those atrocities and felt very strongly that even perhaps more so than Mugabe, he was culpable for them. And so certainly in the west of the country, there is a, a very strong or has been a very strong feeling that, that this man is not the friend of people in Matabililand uh, and has, has been deeply, deeply involved in some of the worst excesses of the Mugabe regime. Uh, Paul Manguana, some 20,000 people are said to have been killed in the course of those massacres in Matabililand. Now, you may dispute Mr. Menengagwa's role in them. But do you feel that it is fundamental if Zimbabwe is to make any progress, any kind of um, reconciliation with the opposition, that ZANU-PF should at some stage say sorry for the human rights abuses of the past? Look, we agreed during the constitution-making process that we should have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It has just been put into office. Let it play its constitutional role. Let's not preempt how this commission is going to, to carry out its work. The troubled past, the unfortunate incidents during uh, the early 80s or during the early times of our independence are part of our history, a history we do not want to go through once again. But do not hold us hostage to that past. We do not want Zimbabwe to be held hostage to the past. There is no country under the sun which does not have bad pages of its own history. But you don't always remind them. I mean, I do not want to remind the British of the barbarians we, we were reading in history. They also have the bad patch. They also have a bad incidents during the, the construction of, of their wonderful country. We have our own bad incidents, but we do not want to be held hostage of the past. Dr Alex Magesa, how important is it to you, how important is it to the opposition in Zimbabwe that ZANU-PF says sorry for the past if there is to be a clean break with the past? Well, I think the issue really is about the people of Zimbabwe more than about the opposition. I think that um, I find it disappointing that ZANU-PF finds it difficult to say sorry. This matter could have been put to bed a long time ago by starting with a sorry to the people, the survivors and victims of Kukurahundi and acknowledging that these things happened. But when people say, let bygones be bygones or when they say we don't want to be held hostage to the past, I think it's an insult to the people who, who, who died during that time. I think that, you know, there is no case of perpetrators of these kinds of events around the world who have held themselves to account. They find it very difficult. Gukurahundi was not a, a bad patch. Gukurahundi was an atrocity that needs to be acknowledged. And I think it's important for people to be able to move forward, that their pain and suffering be acknowledged, be accepted. And I must also correct, uh, my brother has said that we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. No, we do not have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We wanted there to be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but it was watered down to what we call a National Peace and Reconciliation Commission, 
And worse off, it took about five years to actually have this commission start doing any work. And so it only has 10 years lifespan. It's only got five more years to go. If I were part of the Monangago administration when they took over in November, I would have encouraged them to move an amendment to extend the life of that commission. That would have shown more goodwill on the part of them to solve this problem. I just want to return to that question I asked right at the very beginning. Do these elections represent a clean break with the past? And is that very much dependent, and this is a question for all of you, on the outcome of these elections? Will whoever is defeated accept the outcome? Paul Mangwana? My president, who is our presidential candidate, has stated it clearly that as a ZANU-PF, we will accept the outcome of the election. We will respect the wishes of the people of Zimbabwe. Dr. Magisa, would uh, Nelson Chamisa accept the outcome of these elections if the opposition was defeated? Because he fully expects to win, does he not? Well, you don't go into an election when you think that you are going to lose. He is uh, very confident that the people of Zimbabwe are going to back him and the MDC alliance. And uh, there has been a surge in popularity and support over the past few months. He has done phenomenally better than many people would have given him back in February when he took over as president of the MDC. Nelson Chamisa has said this process has got serious problems. He has raised those challenges. He has articulated the problems that the election has with the credibility of ZEC. I think it's important, Julian, that we understand that an election for Zimbabwe should not just be good enough. It has to be a good election. A lot of people look at the absence of peace and say, oh, therefore it's a free and fair election. But that is a very low test. It's not about the absence of peace. It's also about the other issues that affect an election, the credibility of the referee, the rules are being respected, and all sorts of things that have been raised in this election. And so Nelson is saying we are going into this election with extreme reservations about the credibility of the process. But our people are saying, go to the election, we will back you, and Nelson Jamisa expects to win. Julia Gallagher, let me just strike a slightly cynical note. Would the military in Zimbabwe allow ZANU-PF to lose? I think it's unlikely. I think it's unlikely. Because the way that power structures are set up at the moment, it just isn't going to be in their interest to see an overturn of the ZANU-PF regime. You're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at elections in Zimbabwe. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. Why not subscribe so you don't miss an edition and uh, please leave a review. We love recommending our other BBC World Service podcasts as well, and we have a new one to tell you about. Kulki presents My Indian Life. Hello, I'm Kalki Kikla, a Bollywood actor, and I've got some really exciting news. The BBC World Service is about to launch a brand new podcast, and I'm presenting. My Indian Life is about being young and Indian in the 21st century. I won't be shying away from tackling difficult topics. You can listen to the special preview edition now. Search for My Indian Life wherever you find your podcasts. Now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Julian Marshall, looking at Zimbabwe 
And my guests, Julia Gallagher, Professor of African Politics at SOAS and uh, author of Zimbabwe's International Relations. In Harare, Paul Manguana, Legal Affairs Secretary for Zimbabwe's governing ZANU-PF party. In Washington, D.C., Dr. Alex Maigisa, former Chief of Staff to the late leader of the opposition MDC party, Morgan Chvangarai. And uh, joining us now from uh, Harare, Farai Mutambanengwe, Zimbabwean business executive and entrepreneur and executive officer for the SME Association that promotes small and medium-sized businesses. And Farai, many thanks for being with you. But I want to turn first just for an overview of the state of the Zimbabwean economy at the moment to Professor Galahand. How would you characterise the economy? The economy is not in good shape. It had stabilised after 2008, after a period of, of hyperinflation. And during the transitional government, the government of unity, where the opposition came together with ZANU-PF to form a coalition, it was largely stabilised after the Zimbabwe dollar was abolished. It didn't really grow, but people were able to catch their breaths from the, that terrible period of hyperinflation when you just didn't know where your next meal was coming from. Since the 2013 elections, the economy has not really improved. People's situations haven't got better. And it's just sort of reached a kind of situation of kind of steady state doldrums, really. There's a lot of hope that uh, with the exit of Robert Mugabe, that the West could be re-engaged. And there's a a real popular feeling as well as a, a feeling among political elites that foreign investment is very, very important. That hasn't begun to materialise. This election is going to be part of that. So how sort of credible this election looks, how peaceful it is, is going to be an important part of that. But it's, it's, it's really not in great shape. For Aymutambanengwe, how has it been for you as a businessman in Zimbabwe over, say, the last couple of decades? Well, I think the economic decline that the country has gone through is, is well known. It's a, it's a historical fact. Um, you know, we had hyperinflation in the first decade, which was, of course, stemmed by dollarization. But I think what happened just after dollarization is what planted the seed for the situation that we are in right now. Because, um, you know, dollarization is primarily meant to hold hyperinflation. It's not a solution for economic growth. So dollarization was good for a couple of years, a few years, but thereafter we should have had a local currency. And even during the time of the GNU, I know a lot of people That's want the, to say that... the government that the, of national unity when ZANU-PF joined with the opposition. Yes. I know a lot of people want to say that, um, you know, things improved. But the fact of the matter is that because we were dollarized and we were very much an importer, our industry had been decimated in the previous decade. It was inevitable. You know, you're using a hard currency in a continent where everyone, everyone else has a soft currency. So it was inevitable that you would have a lot of imports. Those dollars would be wiped out of the economy and eventually we would be left without an operating currency. And that's exactly what happened um, When I look at it, um, you know, the GNU, yes, it stabilized hyperinflation, but it did not create the conditions required for economic growth. And up to now, we're still struggling with the same issue because um, we then ran out of the U.S. dollar. The government then came up with the bond note, which in itself is not a currency. And that also creates a lot of problems because officially it's supposed to be one to one to the U.S. dollar. 
practically there's a parallel market and right now it's anything between 60 to 80 percent premium trading on the on these markets can yeah. i just interrupt for i mean sure. I, I know that this um you know the currency is is extremely important but i just wondered how you as a businessman and the the kind of small and medium-sized businesses that you try to promote have mm-hmm. they managed to survive or have they gone under well, people always make a plan. You know, that's why there's that parallel market, but it's, it's not ideal at all because, um, you know, there's a lot of things that happen there. Obviously, the rates are not market determined, so they're set by black market dealers. I think that has been the biggest failing of government, failing to solve this issue around cash, in fact, around having a local currency as well as having a proper foreign exchange management system because, um, you know, trying to fix the value of the currency you've got a weak economy and then you want to fix yourself to a strong currency it doesn't work paul Mangwana of the governing zanu pf party mr menangagwa says pretty well every week that zimbabwe is open for business but what is his economic plan for revival his economic plan for revival is uh, to re-engage the major international economic players to attract foreign direct investment, which will stabilize the economy, increase the production capacity by local industry, use the existing natural resources, manage our foreign currents properly, and then uh, expand the economy and um, create jobs for our people. Dr. Alex Magais, I can't imagine that the opposition's uh, plan for uh, developing the economy is very different from that. Well, the the problem with um, ZANU-PF is ineptitude when it comes to managing the economy. It's a sheer lack of discipline. Uh, They spend, spend and spend. They printed money in the first decade, as Farai pointed out, the hyperinflation. They continue to print money now. We have a problem of a government that spends what it does not uh, produce. There are no revenues. And so we are not producing as a country and we are buying a lot more from other countries. We have become a one huge supermarket for South African uh, grocery stores. The issue in Zimbabwe, I think, is a matter of confidence. As one of the presidential candidates pointed out in a debate yesterday, that the problem to Zimbabwe's challenges is political. You need to have political change in order to bring new confidence into the economy. People who look at Zimbabwe want to see that there is a new set of managers, a new set of ideas, a new set of values, protection of private property, and all sorts of things that make an economy tick. The problem that you have with our colleagues in ZANU-PF is that they have conflicting messages. My brother Paul Mangwana here is talking about re-engaging international partners like the IMF, the World Bank and others. Just yesterday in a presidential debate where candidates and their representatives were speaking in Harare, Chris Muchangwa, who is the presidential advisor, was rubbishing the IMF and the World Bank, saying that they are not needed, that they are not necessary. So what is the message? How do you re-engage when you are giving out conflicting messages as a government and as a government to be. The MDC has produced its own economic blueprint, the SMART document, where it articulates in extreme detail how it wishes to run the economy. And of course, issues of re-engagement are crucial. Date resolution is crucial. Helping people to start producing again so that Zimbabwe is able to generate its own currency. Farah is right that we need our own currency, but it needs to be supported. 
And that has to start from the productive sectors, looking at our critical parts of the economy, mining, agriculture, and others. Right now, we have a hemorrhaging economy. There's so much corruption, 38 years of corruption. You don't get people getting prosecuted. You only get one former minister who fell out of favor, getting prosecuted and jailed for a $12,000 offense. But there are millions, if not billions of dollars that have been lost in our economy and nothing has happened. You don't develop when you continue with the same system. Paul Mangwani, your answer to that? We have got structures which have been put in place to deal with corruption. Uh, We want to strengthen the anti-corruption commission. We want to seriously re-engage with the international community. We want to create employment in our country. We want to expand the productive capacity of Zimbabwe. We have got everything to get our country to run if we can only focus on uh, production. And this is uh, what President Mnangagwa has been rallying uh, Zimbabweans towards to say, look, let's continue to produce. Let us correct uh, whatever wrongs we've done in the past and usher in a new dispensation, move forward, and let everybody focus on on production. Professor Gallagher, we can't talk about Zimbabwe's economic decline without talking about land, agricultural land, and Mr Mugabe's policy of the forcible seizure of white farms. Could you just explain the background to that. Land distribution in Zimbabwe was one of the most egregious of the colonial wrongs. The vast majority of fertile land was owned by a small white population of farmers and the vast majority of black Zimbabweans or Rhodesians then were on very poor quality, small amounts of land. That was recognised at Lancaster House. And since then, the government of Robert Mugabe tried to effect a transition of land, first by one uh, by voluntary means and gradually uh, as the economic, economic situation became worse, political situation became worse and it became a hotter topic, land invasions began and the regime acquiesced and enabled eventually these land invasions and a lot of white farmers were pushed off their land in quite dramatic and sometimes violent ways. Land was redistributed. Certain amount of it did go to poor black farmers and had done since independence. There has been some real distribution. Some of it went to um, friends of ZANU-PF. Some of it wasn't terribly well used. A lot of the small new black farmers weren't enabled to farm the land properly, weren't given the inputs, didn't necessarily have the expertise to do it. So it had an enormous effect immediately on Zimbabwe's economy, certainly in terms of exports, because agricultural exports were the backbone of the economy for a long time. But those smallholders have continued to produce tobacco. And I think last year, 2017... Mm. Zimbabwe had a bumper maize crop as well. Interestingly, in the medium term, it began to emerge that quite a lot of these farmers were beginning to make this thing work and that there has been a, a certain success in this in some parts of this redistribution. There's been some research that shows that actually this is beginning to address some of the inequalities that were set up during the colonial era. So I think that some of the vilification of the land redistribution, the way in which it was done was very problematic and, and the immediate effects were difficult. But actually, in the longer run, it has the possibility if it's continues to be managed properly and doesn't become a pawn in in the the hands of an elite which is using it for self-enrichment to really make a difference to Zimbabwe. Paul Mangwana, governing ZANU-PF party. If uh, Emerson Mnangagwa is elected Zimbabwe's next uh, president, what does he intend to do about land? 
land reform is behind us now. We want to focus on productivity. We want to focus on uh, technical training of uh, the new farmers, capitalizing those uh, farmers, teaching them to use modern farming methods and uh, focusing on production on the farms they, 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 they've now acquired and increase and expand uh, production on, uh, on the land. The issue now is about productivity production, productivity on the land. And the government wouldn't mind who was producing. I mean, Mr Menangagwa has spoken about giving white farmers leases of 999 years. He's happy to have them back on the land, is he? White farmers are Zimbabweans, and uh, they are also entitled to the land like the black citizens of Zimbabwe. We want to do away with racism in terms of uh, possession of land and acquisition of land. We have corrected the, the inequalities of the past. We have dealt with the issues of history. We now want to be productive on the land and produce for the country, increase our gross domestic production on the land. That is the focus of uh, President Mnangagwa's government. So he's focused on greater productivity and he really doesn't care who is producing on that land. We have already redistributed land and we are happy that uh, the black majority are now the majority players in terms of uh, land ownership, uh, land possession, ownership and productivity. We want them now to produce, increase what they are producing on the land together with the remaining white farmers who who are still on the land. Dotags Magaisa, is that how the opposition MDC and Nelson Chamisa see it? Well, I have to start by, by saying, uh, you know, when you started the program, you were at Lancaster House. I believe that one of the biggest failings of the Lancaster House agreement was maintaining this land ownership system, which was grossly inequitable. It only postponed the problem rather than solving it. And so what happened post-2000 was bound to happen at some point, and it's regrettable. You're, you're talking about the forcible land seizures. That's right, yes, yes. I, I think that it needed to be resolved. Yes, the methods were disagreeable, but um, as, as Paul Mangwana has said, this is a phase that I think most Zimbabweans believe has come and has passed. There are issues that need to be resolved, issues to do with uh, compensating those who made some economic losses uh, due to the land seizures and the destruction of property. But one of the most important issues which needs to be resolved is multiple farm ownership because one of the reasons why the land redistribution exercise was undertaken was in order to ensure that land went to as many people as possible and was taken away from the few, the elites. But we have just transferred that from the white elites to the black elites, political elites, who are now holding on to multiple farms. We have a commission which is supposed to have started doing work way back in 2013, but it hasn't really produced anything to date. And so we continue to have this problem of inequitable farm ownership. We also need to ensure that the farmers who are on the land have security and they need to get title to that property. It gives them an incentive to invest. It gives them an incentive to grow crops that take longer to mature but are very useful and bring more foreign currency to Zimbabwe. I think it's important that we maintain and support those who are producing. I think tobacco farmers have done phenomenally well and it needs to be acknowledged. But I think there are other areas where we are still lacking. We need to make maximum use of the land that is available. And I think a policy, an agricultural policy that focuses on this, which is 
underpinned by secure property rights, I think will be most useful in transforming Zimbabwe's agricultural sector so that we begin to produce like we used to 20, 30 years ago. Farai Motambanengwe, if I can just bring you back. And uh, would you imagine that's what the business community in Zimbabwe is looking for, not just a coherent agricultural policy, but also a coherent economic policy from whoever emerges as the next president, the next government of Zimbabwe? Yes, definitely that is the case um, because what industry is looking for really is just you know an enabled environment where people can actually get down to business, get down to the productivity that the economy needs. The expectation is that it should happen already. For the last few years, there have been years of doing business reforms where the private sector has been involved, government has been involved. And really, I think the only remaining big issues at the moment are your, the issues around cash, around foreign currency, fiscal discipline by government, and obviously corruption has to be addressed as well as unemployment. By Could I just pick you, pick you up on that? Because, I mean, we've been talking uh-huh. very much in sort of macroeconomic terms, and uh, maybe uh-huh. we do need macroeconomic solutions. But I'm sure that most young Zimbabweans, and in fact an awful lot of Zimbabweans going to the polls, will be wondering where on earth are the jobs going to come from in a country where unemployment is uh, sometimes said to be more than 90%. You know, in Zimbabwe, it's very difficult to say what's happening because most of the economy is now informal. Most people are working for themselves. They are running their small enterprises, even medium-sized enterprises. But you do have a huge uh, swathe of youth that are unemployed. A lot of graduates that have come out and that have failed to get jobs. And obviously, the SME sector at the moment is not really creating decent jobs. It's creating menial jobs or very mediocre jobs. And what we need is an economy that creates decent jobs, an economy that generates capital, because right now uh, things are going downwards instead of um, going upwards. So you have to have an enabled economy that then enables even your SMEs to grow, start creating employment for the unemployed. Um, And you know, the policies around FDI, etc., those are also very good. You want your FDI to come in because your, your small and medium-sized enterprises often link themselves to large companies. So those are the solutions that we need, especially to address unemployment. Professor Gallagher, FDI, Foreign and Direct Investment, uh, and the desperate need for that in Zimbabwe. But um, job creation, can it be done? I'm not an economist. (laughs) Uh, I think it's extremely difficult. Certainly, some of the efforts in the past at creating economic growth in parts of Africa, including Zimbabwe, sometimes some of the prescriptions suggested by Western organisations like the IMF and the World Bank have proved disastrous at creating jobs. Absolutely terrible. I don't think it's it's really clear that that the West has magic answers on any of this. Certainly liberalisation in a weak economy, already a weak economy, leads to hardship and a a lack of opportunity and a lack of the ability to create jobs. Probably uh, Zimbabwe has its natural resources, in particular its, its agriculture and that that starting with that and beginning to really sort of let that grow and, and feed into the economy and you see it already in some of the rural areas um, even now even even you know in recent years where you can see compared to certainly 20 30 years ago that there's a little bit more wealth around and when farmers begin to really be able to produce things and and, and to, 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 to create a bit of, of surplus that's the kind of stimulation that that could begin to to sort of have knock-on effects for other parts of the economy.
Paul Manguana of the governing ZANU-PF. What is your party's uh, specific program for job creation in Zimbabwe? We want to attract foreign direct investment in both agriculture value addition, uh, agricultural beneficiation of our agricultural production, then mining. Mining is key because it is um, a key generator of foreign currency, which can uh, then stabilize the economy. I'm not an economist, but basically what we are saying is that uh, we are rich with uh, natural resources in terms of the land, in terms of uh, minerals. I think we have um, a lot of uh, minerals in our country. We, we need to mine this, sell this, generate foreign currency. Then we use the foreign currency to inject growth into other sectors like trade, uh, manufacturing, and so forth. And that way, once the economy starts to tick, we can then absorb the school leavers because we have um, an expanded education system and uh, we have a loss of intellectual capacity in our country. But uh, regrettably, some of these youngsters who, who complete university degrees cannot be absorbed by this economy. Uh, Dr. Magaisa, job creation? Like I said, I think it's a matter of confidence. If you want to create jobs, if you want to, you want to bring in people, you want to bring in investors, they must have confidence in you. We are talking about huge infrastructure projects we have seen in other African countries. We want them to come to Zimbabwe. They will create jobs for the people. You want to open up other industries like the media, for example. But also, more importantly, we haven't spoken about this. We want to bring in the diaspora, the many Zimbabweans who are outside, not just as people to bring in money through remittances, but as investors in their own economy. Okay, Professor Gallagher, you very honestly admitted earlier on you weren't an economist, but uh, you are the author of Zimbabwe's International Relations. And uh, whatever happens in these elections, this is the beginning of a process of Zimbabwe coming in from the cold. I hope so, yes. My slight fear about this is that there is so much anxiety in the West and certainly in the region, the Southern African region, that Zimbabwe is stable and politically secure, that problems in an election can be overlooked. There'll be a sort of bottom line of what's acceptable. But having a peaceful election, having a stable government is a a very low starting point. I think it's enough to get re-engagement because I think, as I said, that many external actors are keen to re-engage with with Zimbabwe. But I think there's a long, long way to go. Why is that? Because I think that Zimbabwe's institutions have been so damaged. I think the levels of poverty are so high and the economy is in such bad shape and people's confidence is so low. The resignation on the part of voters, and I appreciate that there was great excitement when Mugabe was overthrown and that there's a certain amount of excitement at this election in Harare. But beyond Harare, it's more difficult to find. And many Zimbabweans feel exhausted by the political goings-on in the capital. They don't necessarily feel particularly connected to it. There's almost sometimes a sense of let them get on with it, um, leave us alone. And I think that's going to take an awfully long time to change. And... uh Paul Manguana, just to return briefly to a question I asked uh, at the very beginning, is this a clean break with the past? Uh, Would you go along with Professor Gallagher that it's the, the beginning of a break with the past? 
Yes, it is the beginning of the break. Uh, we, with the past, uh, we have had only uh, six to seven months of the new dispensation. The new leader is coming and uh, he's saying, look, let bygones be bygones. Let's move forward. Let's re- even uh, re-engage with our former colonial masters and let Zimbabwe is free for everybody to come. Uh, we will deal with everybody at arm's length and uh, we are prepared to review some of our policies which appear to have been uh, hindering foreign direct investment where everybody is welcome to come invest in Zimbabwe and this is the new dispensation's view. I think that um, definitely, you know, November was a turning point. The economy is definitely improving um, but the cash and foreign currencies um, issues need to be sorted because those are holding up even your foreign investors. Anyone who wants to invest into Zimbabwe can't do so if you don't have a transparent, a clear monetary management system. But as far as the election is concerned, I think it's just a matter of getting it done. And whoever emerges, hopefully, um, at least what we are happy about from an industry and commerce point of view is that um, Mr. Mnangagwa has been saying the right things. And definitely his policies are policies that are workable going forward, provided we solve um, this bottleneck. Um, the opposition is also coming in. They've got their policies. The fear is that um, there might be some undoing of the ground that has been covered in the last few years. But, um, you know, we remain hopeful. What we want really is a functional economy, one where everybody is happy at the end of the day. Everyone is able to make a decent living. Uh, Dr. Magis, the final and uh, brief word to you, the beginning of a clean break with the past. Well, I think... um one of the issues that really keep me awake is um, that whoever wins this election, half of the country will be depressed. Almost half of the country will be in depression. And and so I think that's a huge challenge for whoever succeeds, which is to pull the other half uh, to begin to believe that they will be able to, to move forward. Uh, I would have said, uh, my brother Paul Mangwana, we were hoping that we would have proportional representation in our constitution. It was rejected. It might have produced outcomes that would have allowed for different kinds of governmental arrangements than the winner-takes-all system that we currently have. But anyway, okay. I wish Zimbabwe well. Dr. Magisa. And that's uh, it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Julia Gallagher, Paul Mangwana, Alex Magese and Farai Mutambanengwe. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. From me, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.